I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. I'm Pastor Jay. It is a privilege to have you here today. As you're doing that, a reminder that if you are at a parenting stage or going to be parenting or grandparenting, uh, Becky and I will be teaching a parenting class for six Wednesday nights consecutively starting a week from Wednesday night on January 12th. And you can sign up through the church office if you're interested. It'll be on Wednesday evenings for six weeks in a row. Well, this morning we're going to do something a little different. I was working on my preaching schedule and planning for this coming year. I decided that I wanted to preach on today, on January 2nd, on the story of the Bible to sort of set the stage for the year. And I want to open this way as we dive into this. If someone were to ask you, what is this book about? What, in fact, is the main theme running through the Bible? How would you answer that question? What is the story of the Bible? Now, some of us grew up in churches. Some of us did not. I grew up in a church where I heard Bible stories, which are true, historically. And it's a good focus, but sometimes Bible stories get detached from each other. And unfortunately, some of us have heard Bible stories but not the story of the Bible. The story in which God is center stage as main character and actor in the grand unified theme that covers Genesis to Revelation. So I want to give you that. There's different ways you obviously can phrase it in English. I want to give you the nine words that I believe best capture the story of the Bible, and then I'm going to helpfully, hopefully unpack this a bit and help us see a little different perspective, I think, this morning on what's going on. So here is what I believe the Bible is about, summarized in English. Nine words. The story of the Bible is this. God's promise to display his glory among all nations. God's promise to display his glory among all nations. Some of you know the name Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian and pastor. He captured the story of the Bible in a small essay he wrote back in 1765. Now, essays back then tended to have longer names and titles than today, but this is the title of his essay. It was a dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. Jonathan Edwards, 1765. A dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. And through that small essay, Edwards argued that God's passion for his own glory is the central driving theme of the Bible. And ladies and gentlemen, young people, boys and girls, I want to preface things this way. Once you see the story of the Bible... Once you put on these lenses, and there's no guarantee you'll have these lenses just because you grew up in a church and went to a Christian college, but once you have these lenses and put them on, it's a game changer. It literally changes how you view everything in the Christian life. It changes how you see God. It changes how you see your involvement in a local church. It changes how you see money, marriage, sex, relationships, parenting, missions, evangelism, it changes everything. It's a game changer. 
when you see and understand the story of the Bible, instead of seeing this as 66 separate books, which so many do, you begin to see it as one book, one unified story, one author, one plot, one design. And it's a story like all great stories that has an introduction and then has a main plot and then has a conclusion. And the introduction is Genesis 1 to 11, and I'll unpack that in just a second. And then the main plot runs from Genesis 12 through the book of Jude, and then the conclusion to the story of the Bible we will find in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at a lot of passages, whether you're looking at your Bible electronically or on paper, we're going to be moving along. I would encourage you to follow along. This will also be on our live stream. It's on our YouTube channel, and you can see it. But I would encourage you to follow along to the best of our ability. I'm leaving out far more than I am including. Just be aware of that as we walk through this. So first of all, I'm going to make a couple comments. We're not going to look at anything in Genesis 1 to 11, but I want to set the stage. How does the Bible introduce the story of the Bible? Well, here it goes. The story of the Bible begins with God, a perfect God, creating everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He alone existed in triune glory, and he created for his own glory and initiated a planet, a universe, and he put the very first biological couple. There was a literal Adam and Eve who were the genetic ancestors of all of us on this perfect planet. And he initiates a love relationship with them. And Adam and Eve rebel in insanity against their creator. And it leads the human race into spiritual ruin. So God eventually destroys the human race in a worldwide flood except for one family. There was a worldwide flood. There was one family rescued. But after Noah's rescued, further rebellion occurs. God scatters the peoples of the earth. And when you get to the end of the introduction to the Bible, Genesis 11, here's where we're at. We have a loving, righteous God in heaven. We have mankind in rebellion against God even after the flood. And lastly, we have a man whom God says, I'm going to raise up Abram to be the father of many nations and through whom I'm going to bless the nations. By the way, when the Bible uses the phrase nations in Hebrew and or Greek, generally does not mean political boundaries and political entities like we think. It basically means peoples or ethnic groupings as a cultural setting. So just to have that, because we're going to use the word a number of times in this sermon, and I just want to make sure you're thinking more in line with ethnic groups. In fact, we get our English word ethnic from the Greek word ethnos, peoples or Gentiles. So the introduction to the Bible begins that way, and that is where you're at at the end of the introduction to the Bible. That takes us to Genesis 12, where the main plot begins and takes us all the way through the book of Jude. So we have the introduction to the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11. Main plot, Genesis 12 through Jude. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And we're going to be looking at some passages. I want to start in Genesis 12. And I want to show you this theme, God's promise to display His glory among all nations. That's it. That's the story of the Bible. And I want to show you how this comes out in passage after passage after passage after passage. And again, my goal is to fundamentally change how we see God, exalt Him at the beginning of a new year, and make sure we have the right lenses on as we read our Bible. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God promises to choose a people and to bless all nations through this man. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples or nations on earth will be blessed through you. That is the Great Commission, by the way. Jesus did not give the Great Commission. Jesus reviewed the Great Commission. Where did he get it? He got it from Genesis chapter 12. Now, it's important to grasp here. Let me say a couple words about Abram. Abram was not seeking God. Abram lived roughly in the area of what would be modern-day Iraq. He was a pagan. He was a polytheist. He was an idol worshiper and a worshiper of demons. God sought Abraham. Abraham did not seek God. Romans 3.11 reminds us no one seeks God. So Abraham wasn't out there seeking him. God interrupted his life as a pagan polytheist and drew him to himself. I like the phrase C.S. Lewis uses in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, when he calls God the great transcendental interferer. <laughs> it's a great illustration, I mean, it's a great name for God. And you think of that, Lewis said, you know, I had my, my plans, that's kind of a joke when we talk about our plan, my, my, plot, my plans laid out in front of me, and the great transcendental interferer got in my way and dragged me, Lewis said, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. This is exactly what happened here with Abraham. God chose Abraham as the father of his people to carry his name. The great transcendental interferer interrupted the life of a pagan polytheist in the Middle East and brought him to faith and said, I am making you the father of many nations. You are the beginning of my people. And you're going to do this because I am committed to spreading my name, my fame, and my glory to all nations. That's the story of the Bible. And by the way, let me just add this. This highlights, now this, this may be a bit shocking, but let me unpack it. This highlights the good news of the doctrine of predestination. You say, why? Because the doctrine of election ensures that there will, in fact, be some from every tribe, language, and nation in heaven. When you look at the Bible and consider how dark the human heart is, how evil it is, how self-absorbed it is, how in rebellion it is, there would be nobody in heaven if it were not for the doctrine of predestination. There would be none if God did not call his elect. And so, in a very real sense, predestination is absolutely essential for the spread of the gospel and the success of world missions. That is a very countercultural way to phrase it in Western culture, but it is a very biblical, God centered way to phrase it according to Scripture. So Genesis 3, I mean Genesis 12, 1 to 3 sets the stage as we begin the main plot. Now, I want to turn next to Exodus chapter 9. And again, remember, I'm leaving out more than I'm including. I'm leaving out more than I am including, but I hope I've put enough in to show you that this theme is relentless as it unpacks and unfolds in Scripture. Genesis 9, 13 to 16. The story of the Bible continues. God's promise to display his glory among all nations. We are in the middle of the Exodus narrative here and the plagues in Egypt. Let me read verses 13 to 16 where we're going to see God promising to exalt himself. Here's the theme. God's promise to exalt himself, display his glory by unleashing judgment on Pharaoh. This is a very important point. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 13, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, 
This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Anytime God speaks and says, listen, it's a good thing to listen. Let my people go so they may worship me. For this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. Please notice verse 16 and 17. Very important. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You will still set yourself up against my people and will not let them go. So even though... God's going to do this. Pharaoh's not going to respond. But the point, verse 16, is I'm doing all of this. We're given the reason right here in the text. What's the text say? I am doing this so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That, ladies and gentlemen, that young people, boys and girls, that is the story of the Bible. Now, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 quotes this passage. He quotes this passage to establish the same principle in both Exodus 9 and Romans 9. We see God's promise that he is going to exalt his name and his glory among the nations. In Exodus 9, how does he do it? We're told that he does this by hardening Pharaoh. In fact, we're told several times he's going to harden Pharaoh. So sometimes, hear this, sometimes God displays his glory through mercy as he did when he was rescuing the Hebrews here from slavery. And other times, God displays his glory through judgment, as he did here with the Egyptians and later with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So sometimes God displays his glory and advances his glory through salvation and mercy. Sometimes God advances his glory and his his fame through judgment. A couple years ago, Dr. James Hamilton from Southern Seminary wrote a book along this line, very good book, large book, called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. What Hamilton does is he walks through every book of the Bible showing you how God and the central theme of the Bible is God displaying his glory back and forth through judgment and then through mercy. And his point is God's display of his own glory comes regularly through both judgment and and mercy. Again, the book is entitled God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. On to Psalm 46. I want to show you how this continues to unfold. There's a number of passages in the Psalms. I had to leave out as many as I'm including here this morning. But these are so clear. Young people, again, if you get this, you will never read your Bible the same way ever again. You will never view the church the same way ever again. You won't view anything in your life the same way again when you realize life is ultimately about God and not about us. I had a youth pastor in one of our churches that we served in, and he had a t-shirt. On the t-shirt it said on the back, there are two facts in life you should know. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you are not him. And that's a good reminder for all of us. Acts, I mean, uh, Psalm 46.10. Here's the story of the Bible again in the Psalms. God says, Be still and know I am God. 
That's a good thing for all of us to do in a noisy culture. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Who's the Bible about? What's the story of the Bible? It's God's promise to display his glory among all nations. And this comes out over and over in displays of judgment and in displays of mercy. You can't miss it. It's everywhere. And it's a reminder, the gospel, Psalm 46.10, is a reminder the gospel is going to spread to all nations. And this speaks to the triumph of missions. That's why Psalm 46.10 is a great verse for a missions conference. This is going to happen because God is behind the endeavor. He is the one committed. He is the one who has promised that he's going to display his glory among every single people group on the earth. Nobody can stop him. He is going to do it. His kingdom will spread. Psalm 67, passage that Pastor Doug read. I'm only going to read the first two verses. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. I love these two verses. It's actually a prayer. This is a prayer for God to be known and worshipped among the nations. So the Bible's reminding us God is calling out a people for himself to worship him and that his goal, by the way, for his elect is not just to know of him, but to enjoy him and worship him because he gets more glory as he's known and rejoiced in. And that comes out here, Psalm 67, 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. Why? So that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. We raised our kids on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I would highly encourage you, if you're parenting, Becky and I will be talking about this in the parenting class, of the value of using a catechism with your children so you're not just teaching them Bible stories, but you're teaching them doctrine and theology and showing how it all knits together. But the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is, again, it's called the Shorter Catechism because it's for children, even though it's 107 questions. But the very first question, some of you know it, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is so biblical. The chief end of man is to glorify God forever and to enjoy him. To glorify God and enjoy him. Both are in scripture because it goes back to this. God doesn't want to just be known. He wants to be enjoyed by his people. And the more they enjoy him, the more glory he gets. John Piper wrote a great book back in the 90s, Let the Nations Be Glad, and he shows how God's desire for his own glory and our desire to be satisfied in him work in tandem because the more we're satisfied in him, the more glorified he gets, and you have this relationship, I believe, that will go on for all of eternity as he is increasingly glorified. Now, let's bring up the elephant in the room, the question which is simply this. Isn't it wrong to seek your own self-promotion? Isn't it wrong to say, hey, I'm the center of the universe. All glory and honor be unto me. Well, the short answer is for any human being, it would be wrong. Been a lot of people who tried it, a lot of people who've done it. It would be very wrong. Why? Because we are not ultimate and we are not God. That's the number one reason it's wrong. Also, for humans, self-exaltation is wrong because we're not ultimate. But also because for a human being, self-exaltation 
is about getting, not giving. For God, who is ultimate, self-exaltation is about giving and not getting. That's the difference in God doing self-exaltation in us. That is the difference why it is okay for God to be God-centered and not for us to be self-centered. This is exactly why it is a gift. Hear this. It is exactly why it is a gift to the human race for God to be God-centered because God is love. And he loves us most by making much of himself and then inviting us to get caught up in something larger than ourselves. Let me ask you a question. When are human beings most miserable? And the answer is when we are focused on ourselves, right? We know that. When are we least miserable? When we get caught up in something larger than ourselves, like the glory of God, and for a few blessed moments, we forget about ourselves and realize I'm caught up in something much greater. That's why this, ladies and gentlemen, young people, is so vital to grasp if you want to understand your Bible. Psalm 96, the story of the Bible, pounded home again. What is the story of the Bible? God's promise to display his glory among the nations. It doesn't just come up here and there. It's everywhere. Here's an example. Psalm 96, verse 3, for example. Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. All gods. Look at verse 8. What, so it, there's a summons in verse 8. So ascribe to Yahweh the glory that is due his name and bring an offering and come into his courts. Let's go over to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, where you have one of the most God-centered passages in the Bible, in verses 9 to 11, where God leaves you with no doubt why he does what he does, that he acts in history to promote and protect his name. That's his driving passion, is to protect and honor his name and advance it among the nations. Isaiah 48 Verses 9 to 11, God speaking, and he leaves no doubt about why he acts in history, to promote and protect his glory. Now, you may say, I don't like that. I'm not here to just say, make you like it. I'm here to show you faithfully what does the Scriptures teach and why it is so beneficial if we catch on to it. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. God is driving home here the absolutely centrality of God in his own affections. For my own name's sake, I will delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I will hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I tested you in the furnace of affliction. Please notice verse 11. For my own sake... For my own sake, when you repeat something in Hebrew, it's for emphasis. Twice, 
for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to anyone. All I need are those few verses to establish the story of the Bible. That God's foremost passion, his foremost agenda is promoting his glory among all peoples. And it comes out over and over and over. And here's what's sad. We expect that American culture, let's pick on American culture or Western culture. We expect Western culture to miss this, of course. What's sad is how many in evangelical Bible preaching churches have missed this. I had someone come up after the first service and just said, you know, in essence, I needed the reminder, kind of like a divine uh, uh, chiropractor, you know, kind of putting things back in alignment. Because I, I had, he said, I'd, I'd forgotten that God's chief commitment in the, in, in the universe is himself and his glory and inviting us to get caught up in that glory and that that's what the church should be about in worship and our own lives and our families and marriages. That is the benefit, ladies and gentlemen. That's the sad reality, how many sit in Bible teaching churches and have missed this. And once you get this, again, it's a game changer for the better and for the good because God is inviting you and I to get caught up in something far bigger than us. Look, we're transitory. We're here for a moment and we're gone. And praise God, there's something much greater going on in the universe than just me. Because if it's just me, that's a depressing end to a whole story. And here you have that. Isaiah 66, verse 19. I love this verse at the end of Isaiah. Probably not on your radar screen. But again, when you read it, thinking of the story of the Bible, I could have just lifted this wording for the story of the Bible. Because he says it exactly. Isaiah 66, 19, you have God promising to be glorified among the nations for his salvation. Here it is. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations. To where? To Tarshish. To the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers. To Tubal in Greece. To the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory and they will proclaim my glory among the nations. I am not making this up this morning. It is relentless in the Bible. Over and over it is pounded home that God's foremost passion is for his own glory. And seeing that glory displayed among the nations and inviting his people to be caught up in that glory story and that glory and to forget about themselves in the appropriate way and be caught up in something much bigger. You want to talk about a cause that fires up young people. You want to talk about a cause that fires up college students. It's understanding God's commitment to spread his glory among all peoples. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20, where you have a chapter that is drenched in the story of the Bible. Ezekiel 20, I'm just going to show you a couple phrases, actually, in four different verses, all saying the same exact thing. And we're also going to briefly do a drive-by of Ezekiel 36, if you want to put a finger there. 
Ezekiel 20. I'm going to start in verse 9. Ezekiel 20, verse 9. What is the story of the Bible? God's promise to display his glory among the nations. Is that established here? Well, what's the text say? Ezekiel 20, verse 9. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. For the sake of my name. Down to verse 14. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Stop down to verse 22. But I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name. Look at verse 44. As you get near the end of chapter 20. You will know, I am Yahweh. The divine name is used there in Hebrew. You will know I am Yahweh when I deal with you. For my name's sake, and not according to your evil ways and your corrupt practices, you people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. Why does God act? Over and over we have his own testimony. He acts for the sake of his own glory and displaying that glory among the nations. That changes everything. And it should change everything about us how we forgive those who have betrayed us, how we spend our money, how we view the local church, how we view marriage, how we view sex, how we view relationships, how we view parenting. It should change everything. Because it's not about me. It's not about me being vindicated. It's not about me enjoying with this or that and, and earthly pleasures. It's about me participating in helping God what is most valuable to him and in the process being caught up in that and receiving joy that comes when I am actually enjoying him. That's why I love, again, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23, two of the most God-centered verses in the whole prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 20, 36, verses 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now, this, this is a slap down on human pride. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which you have trashed among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, you could not find two verses that drives home this more. And again, this is not just an isolated theme. It is the center of the Bible. God's promise to display his glory, his name, his fame, whatever word you want to use there, among the nations. Seventy times in the book of Ezekiel, we're told God does what he does so that, quote, we might know he is the Lord. Ten other times in Ezekiel, God simply declares, I am Yahweh, taking us back to where? Exodus 3 and the burning bush, 
What happened in Exodus 3 in the burning bush? God says to Moses through a burning bush, I want you to go tell my people, and he gives them a message, and Moses says, well, who am I to say sent me? And all you get is this in English, which is an awkward phrase coming out of Hebrew, you tell them, I am sent you. And it's interesting, I am is not God's name. I am is a title. God's name is Yahweh, but the Hebrew name Yahweh is built on the verb I am, the Hebrew verb I am. They're linked. Now, theologians like to talk about the aseity of God. What is the aseity of God? The aseity of God is that God is sufficient in and of himself, independent of anything outside of his triune glory for his existence. He is who he is. He does what he does. He wills what he wills. He is ultimate and supreme. And the that his people get this, nothing is more important, nothing is more relevant, nothing is more glorious, nothing is more beautiful, and nothing is more satisfying in life than when a saint finally rests in that knowledge. Let me put it this way. The story of the Bible is about God making much of himself so that lost sinners can see and savor him. That's the story of the Bible. It's about God making much of himself so that lost sinners can see and savor his son. It means that God's foremost passion in the universe is his glory, his name, his fame, and he wants us to know that. I was reading a book several years ago by a very well-known pastor whom I respect in a number of ways, but he made a statement that just was wrong. Okay? He said this, there's only one thing in the universe that God really treasures. Well, that perked my interest. And then he went on to say, it's people. It's people. Now, I think I know what he was trying to say, but that's a very reckless way to say it. That is not what God treasures the most. Does God love people? Yes. Is God love? Yes. Did he send his son to rescue lost sinners? Does he display his love on the cross? Yes. Is he filled with mercy and goodness? Absolutely. Or nobody would make it to the new heaven and new earth. But to say that God, what he treasures most in the whole universe is people, is far off base biblically. What he treasures most in the universe, ladies and gentlemen, young people, what God savors the most in the universe is his own glory, his own name, and his own fame. And the great hope of eternal life and finding joy along the journey is coming to a peaceful understanding of that and participating with him in that. Lastly, Malachi chapter 1, verse 11 for the Old Testament. Malachi 1, 11. Is the Bible primarily about me? No. We like to joke about yearbook theology. What's the first thing you do when you get your yearbook in high school? Who do you look for? You! Not necessarily wrong, but a lot of people approach their Bible the same way. We're, we're spending all our time looking for verses that affirm me. Your book theology. And here you got another reminder. I am not the primary focus of the Bible. I am certainly an important subplot. So are you. God created us for his own glory. But he is center stage in the story and you couldn't say it any clearer at the end of the English canon than in Malachi 1.11. My name will be great 
among the nations. There you have it. I mean, how do you make it any clearer than that? My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because, here it is, my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh Almighty. Says Yahweh Almighty. Once again, God's promise ensures the spread of the gospel and the success of world missions. David Garrison, I've quoted him before as a researcher, especially among, uh, for Islam and trends in the Muslim world. He wrote a very insightful book just a couple of years ago, and in the book he said, more Muslims have come to faith in the last 100 years than in the previous 1,400 years. A reminder that God is spreading his fame to all peoples. He wrote this, we are living in the midst of the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ in history. Why? Because God's kingdom is spreading. It is going forth and he is displaying his glory among all peoples and he will continue to. Let's go to the New Testament. We have just a couple passages to look at. First one is Matthew 6 verse 9. Where we find a very interesting phrase in the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9. This is really the, the disciples' prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. But I want to drill down on a phrase in verse 9. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. Not necessarily what to pray, but how to pray. And he says, this is how a true believer's prayer should begin. It starts with God's glory. How? You should start this way. Our Father in heaven. And then notice the next phrase. It's an imperative verb in the Greek, which means it's a, it's a, it's a command. It's a plea. You're actually telling God to do something. Hallowed be your name. It's not just saying, I hope that happens, Lord. It's actually, because it's an imperative in the Greek, you are actually instructing the Lord, Lord, advance your name today. May your name be hallowed today among all the earth. That's how prayer begins. How many of your prayers begin that way? Are you teaching your children to pray that way, your grandchildren? That that's where prayer begins. We'll get our eyes off ourselves much sooner if we start our prayer that way. John 1.1, 1, 1. we're going to look at just a couple other passages as the story of the Bible continues to unfold. John's Gospel, chapter 1. John 1.1, 1, 1, last of the four Gospels. What's the story of the Bible? God's promise to display his glory among all nations. And we find that right here in John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. I drop down to verse 14 and notice, ladies and gentlemen, the language here. Linger for a moment. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his, what? Glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So the Word was God, the Word became flesh, and then we saw His glory in John 17. 
Jesus is praying, talking to his father, and he says, Father, I want those you've given me to see my glory. That's the story of the Bible and the gospel. In other words, Jesus becomes the visible display of God's glory to the nations, which means the gospel is a direct extension of the story of the Bible. That's exactly what it means. The gospel is good news within a larger story, the story of the Bible. The last verse I want to show us in the main plot is Acts 9, verse 15. So we have this introduction to the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11. We have the main plot, Genesis 12 to Jude. And then we have the conclusion, Revelation. We're getting there in just a moment. The last verse I want to look at inside the main plot that establishes the story of the Bible is Acts 9, 15. <clears throat> if you're not familiar with your Bible... Jesus appears to Saul in what is modern-day Syria in a blinding vision. And he tells Saul why he chose him. Again, Saul was not seeking God. Nobody seeks God. Jesus, the great transcendental interferer, knocked Saul on the ground and gave him a message and then he brought a man named Ananias into his life. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, meaning Saul, who became Paul. This is Jesus talking about why he chose Saul. He is my chosen instrument. Please notice what the text says. Why did Jesus choose this persecutor of Christians? To proclaim my name to the Gentiles. It's the same exact word for nations and their kings and to the people of Israel. And what's the price tag of Saul doing this? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. All right, let's go to the conclusion of the story of the Bible. Book of Revelation, chapter 5. We have the introduction, Genesis 1 to 11, a perfect God who made the perfect couple and rebelled. God flooded the earth. And then he raised up one man named Abram and said, I'm going to bless all nations. That's the introduction. Then you have the main plot where God says, I'm going to display my glory and advance my name among all nations. And he, he does it. And we see it in passage after passage, sometimes through judgment, sometimes through mercy. But his driving theme, his driving goal is the display of his glory among all peoples. And now we come to the end, the conclusion, where we're going to see that God pulls off exactly what he promised in Genesis. That there is, among all peoples, some who will worship him around the throne. Revelation 5.9. They sang a new song. This is in heaven around the throne saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. This is a song to Jesus. And with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. What was the promise made to Abraham? What did Jesus restate in the Great Commission? Go to all ethne. And here you have the end of the story where we're told, this hasn't even happened yet, one day around the throne, there will be some from every tribe and tongue and language and nation around the throne worshiping him. It's also said in chapter 7, verse 9. You have chapter 5, verse 9. You have chapter 7, verse 9. Both telling us at the end of history, 
God will have become famous among all nations. After this I looked, verse 9, chapter 7, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count, and where were they from? Every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of the Bible, and that will be the great conclusion. God's promise to display His glory. We see it from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, and here we're told the end of the story is God will accomplish exactly what He promised to pull off. By the way, evangelical Christians love 5-9, and we love 7-9, and we forget about 6-9. What's the price tag to reaching the nations? Well, John tells us in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 6, And it is this, it's going to require martyrdom and suffering on the part of God's people. Then he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. And then down to verse 11, we have a very interesting verse. Each of them was given a white robe and they were told, these are the martyrs, these are those who have been martyred for the gospel. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters who were to be killed just as they had been. There is an appointed number of martyrs that must take place before the end will come. So you have 5-9, you have 7-9 announcing God will pull it off, that he will display his glory among all peoples. But verse six, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, again, the price tag, just like Saul was told. There will be suffering to accomplish this goal. All right, what's our summons? Let's land this plane this morning. And I want to just give two brief summons. Number one, have you been reconciled to this God? I'm not asking, do you go to church regularly? I'm not asking, are you a member of this church? I'm not asking, do you... Read your Bible. I'm asking, do you know the living God? Have you been forgiven of your sin, and are you ready to stand in front of him for judgment, which we will all do? Our lives are like this, and then we will stand before God. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for mankind to die once. After this comes judgment. You say, well, what do I need to do? Well, Jesus came preaching in Mark chapter 1, and he said, repent and believe the gospel. Repent is to hate our sin and go the other direction and own up to it, and believe is to be all in with Jesus and say, I believe you died and took my place on the cross. That is how you're born again. Second summons this morning for those who are Christians here this morning, and it is this. If you're truly born again, and I know a lot of us are, if you're truly saved, here's my question. Are you letting the story of the Bible pull you forward through life's pain in gospel courage? We're on a painful journey. We're on a glorious journey, but it's a painful journey. And one of the reasons, friends, so many true Christians succumb to fear, to bitterness, to alcohol, to love of money, to lust, to pornography, to discouragement, to anger, to depression, is because we forget who God is. And we forget the story of the Bible and we get sidetracked on all the little petty things we get sidetracked on. I do and you do and that is why something like this needs to pull us back and remind us 
to stay focused on God's providence, his purposes, his provisions, and his promises. Why? Because promises pull us forward in courage and gospel hope. And that is why, if you understand the story of the Bible, you will never, ever read your Bible the same way again. Amen? Father, we do thank you for how clearly this comes out in the canon of Scripture. It is not a marginal theme. And so we ask your forgiveness. I do. We do. When we marginalize this central story of the Bible, as we get ready to sing, here's my prayer, that we will sing very differently now than we might have an hour, hour and a half ago. Because we've been refreshed and reminded we are not central. You do love us, but we're not central. You are. Help us to see and savor the glory of Christ accordingly. In his global name, amen.